What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, all my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And, uh, hey, guys, I got a question for both of you. Have you ever been on an airplane? Yes. I have also. As a matter of fact. In fact, Lauren, you've sat next to me on an airplane, <laughs> so I, I knew that answer already you, for you. You did. You're either very forgetful or asking a hypothetical question yes. or to set up a deeper conversation. Yes, it was a rhetorical device, <laughs> uh, I admit. I am not above such things. We wanted to talk about the future of air travel in this episode and kind of talk about, you know, why is air travel even something that we're thinking about? Why? What's important about it? And what are the various... Barriers to making it, you know, more awesome. <laughs> more awesome. Yeah. I might be different than both of you in that I straight up hate air travel. Oh like, yeah. I don't. Um, I don't hate it so much that I refuse to get on a plane. Like some of those people. I mean, right. we, I think we know some around here who 
who well, just will not. We've got a yeah. couple of people who work at HealthStuffWorks who have uh, phobias that they yeah. deal with. Uh, and uh, no no judgment about that. You sure. Know, that's mm-hmm. very understandable because I, I – almost share it i just ex- very much dislike it it's, i uh, uh it, it's kind of like you know asking me if i would ride in the trunk of a car if it was my <laughs> only option to get to where i needed to go i mean i i guess i would do it but you wouldn't be happy but you right. really wouldn't be excited about uh, it i i am fine with air travel i have no problem with it whatsoever i actually i can find flying on an airplane to be relaxing. I can fall asleep before we end up taxiing to for takeoff. Oh, but wow. uh, but on the I'm other not that hand, comfortable on planes. <laughs> on the other hand, I, I hate everything else about it. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't. I, I find actually getting. I, the most stressful thing for me is just getting to the point where I'm at my gate. Mm-hmm. That's actually the most oh, stressful sure. part. Well, well, with security checks these days and all and that. And the fact that in the Atlanta airport, you have to travel approximately 47 miles before you ever get to the gate that you need to get to. Yeah. Um, that also helps. Yeah. Uh, the so, uh, non-Euclidean design of airports yes. certainly doesn't help. Yeah. Though, the, though there's a wonderful comedy factor to the uh, narration of the between terminal train. Oh, the plane the, train is what yeah. it's called now. And I wish I were making that up. There are some, there are some great voice, voice acting. Actually, you know. uh, but I'll have to play for you guys. Uh, my wife found a sound clip of the old plane train, which was, uh, in the, early days of the Atlanta airport voiced by apparently a Cylon from the original Battlestar Galactica series. <laughs> it had that kind of robotic voice made like by your command. We're not moving to concourse B. It didn't do the by your command part, but you get my point. Anyway, you know, there are some problems with air travel, even on a perfect flight, right? I mean, not, there's not just our biases, but they are sort of, uh, actual problems. Yeah. We, we've gotten to a point where. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's still amazing to think that we're able to travel anywhere in the world with, within, you know, a fraction of the time it would have taken a century ago. Yeah. I mean, obviously that is amazing. Yeah. You can, you can get to the opposite side of the globe within about 12 hours of travel, which is again, like unthinkable. I mean, earlier generations would have thought this was amazing that we can travel from one point to another so relatively quickly. But I mean, there's still improvements to be had. In fact, if you look at some of uh, commercial air flight, we're not traveling as quickly as some aircraft used to travel. So we wanted to look at the future of air travel and kind of look at it. Well, everything from can we get to point A to point B from point A to point B faster? Uh, and how much fuel are we using? What is the environmental impact of that? Is there any way of making aircraft more efficient so that we don't use as much fuel? Obviously, energy is always something we're thinking about here on this, this podcast, right? Uh-huh. Because our needs for energy are just going to continue to rise over time. And so we have to be smarter about the ways we, we end up getting at energy. Well, okay. Let's start with energy. Um, I'm no, uh, physicistist. But right, obviously, <laughs> but you're a professional me talker. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, it takes a lot more energy to move something through the air than to move that same amount of mass just along the ground. Uh, in general, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, without it falling, yes, through the air. Uh, al- although this, this is part of why airplanes are so keen these days on getting as many people as is 
physically possible crammed into a single airplane because it becomes a lot more efficient the more people you are conveying from one place to another. Yeah, mm-hmm. from a cost perspective, from a, you know, you think of it as the number of miles per passenger. Like it's Right, right. I mean, you know, if if, if you're if you're thinking about it, a a plane might burn like a gallon of fuel every second. That's um, a lot of fuel. Which is a whole bunch of fuel. But if you even that out to about 500 passengers, that that's, you know, that's really, you're, you're getting like 100 miles to the gallon. Right, yeah. So it's it's a little different from looking at a car. You know, in a car, we tend to just think of how far can this car go on a full tank of gas? Like that tends to be the way we think about mileage uh, in in as far as, regular car vehicle type stuff goes. But if you're talking about aircraft, then we start looking at, well, how many people can it carry from its uh, point of origin to its destination and how much fuel is it burning? And then you kind of figure out the efficiency based on both of those things, not just how much fuel did it burn, but how many people was it able to carry? Right. Um, and, and there's there's more complications. Uh, basically, all of this is really complicated to discuss because because planes don't use the same fuel that cars do. Right. Um, and so all of the uh, all of the emissions are going to be different and your efficiency is going to vary widely based on different aircraft. Also, as it turns out, guys, um, chemical companies aren't really excited about publicizing their proprietary formulas. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but they're a little bit secretive about their secret formulas. I've been familiar with this ever since my first trip to KFC <laughs> when uh, I discovered that proprietary secrets are something they take very seriously. When I sit there and I say, I've identified seven out of your 11 secret herbs and spices, and then they just oh, escorted the me from the building. the ski masks came out of the kitchen. It, was, it got ugly. And uh, as it turns out, the people in the uh, aircraft industry are uh, are almost <laughs> as intense about it. So, <laughs> Yeah, I imagine they're not super forthcoming about, say, like exactly what the fuel efficiency standards of their vehicles are. and uh, Yeah, exactly what, what kind of emissions come out of it as a yeah. result. And, yeah, and, and you, can, you can check out their... There's a few governmental websites that'll talk a little bit about um, really, really basic concepts of of averages across standards. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, you can you can look it up and and say that a, a jet fuel emits some 9.6 kilograms of carbon dioxide per gallon burned. Um, wow. So uh, then you have to extrapolate that by how many gallons are burned on a typical flight and then figure out how many flights are there on a typical day. And yeah, this gets complicated. And also and not only that, but I mean, aircraft can burn different amounts of fuel depending upon how much weight they're carrying. Oh, absolutely. And how, you know, how, how long the distance is, how long they spend at an optimum speed versus the, uh, the, the takeoff and landing, right. what the weather conditions are like, um, all sorts of stuff like that will go into that number. Uh, you know, on on an average comparison, your your you know automobile is going to emit some eight point nine kilograms of carbon dioxide per gallon burned. Right, and so it's, and it's, it's burning it's, fewer gallons. Yes, but you're also not talking about the same kind of gasoline. Jet fuel is uh, kerosene based. It's it's kerosene or um, or naphtha. Um, plus some other hydrocarbons purified to remove various contaminants up to and including like water. As it turns out, crystals of ice are really bad if they get into your jet engine. Mm. Um, and plus a few additives to prevent stuff like a uh, corrosion and static buildup. Um, you know, as opposed to, to, to autogas or mogas, which is the kind of aviation term for automobile fuel, which is, you know, petro- petroleum gasoline, um, mo- modified with some ethanol to burn cleaner. 
Yeah, to increase the octane. And, the, and another couple additives to prevent a couple things. Okay, but jet fuel emissions, we're not just talking about like a carbon problem, right? There, there's some other contaminants, right? Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides that wind up in jet fuel emissions. And uh, a study out of MIT just recently found that it's it, it's pretty toxic stuff. They were looking at flight paths and weather weather patterns and um, premature deaths in various areas that have roots in air pollution. You know, you're you're talking about deaths, you know, with with cardiovascular respiratory problems, uh, lung cancer, stuff like that. And jet plane emissions can kill about ten thousand people every year. Wow! What? Wow! According to according to MIT. Um, yeah, j- just looking at, at the way that these these areas of increased risk of death from cardiovascular, for, from air pollution-related causes are t- turning up 10,000 deaths per year in areas that receive a high concentration of jet fuel emission. Man. And, yeah, well, okay, okay, for, for, for the record, ships are a lot worse and can cause as many as 60,000 people to die every year. And I did not find a number on cars, so that is completely unhelpful. But that's a lot. And some of this might be impacted by something as simple as regulatory me- measures like filtering out sulfur, which could cost as little as five cents a gallon, according to some researchers. Yeah. So now, keeping in mind that these these aircraft have hundreds of gallons of gas, but still, yes. And when you compare that to huh, deaths, it's yeah. still cheap. Yeah, if, if you could, if you could save people from from dying from the inhalation of particulates and the development of these deadly diseases, then that's yeah. And you brought up something else. I just want to address really quickly before we move on, mm-hmm. which is that the idea that there are other vehicles that also create. Uh, harmful emissions that can contribute to health hazards and even contribute to someone dying earlier than what they normally would have. We totally understand that. We do understand there are other vehicles that do this. Oh, yeah. But that you can't, you can't say because these other things do this, then this isn't a problem. Clearly, it's a problem that we need to look at across multiple uh, types of vehicles. So um, we're focusing today on on aircraft right. because we could go on for a very long time about many different kinds of travel and probably will in future episodes. Yes, exactly. So I just wanted to bring that up so that we don't get the people who who respond with, well, if vehicles contribute to X number and aircraft are only X number, then why are you saying let's uh, let's fix you know just the aircraft at the expense of vehicles? That's not what we're saying. Uh, sure. Also, air travel is on the rise in the United States. It saw a I, I don't have the number in front of me. But I remember seeing like a 1.3% increase from 2011 to 2012, you know, which which over the course of several years worldwide, that was just in the U.S., could be pretty significant. Mm. And noise pollution is is a thing, too, with aircraft. A couple oh, yeah. studies published in the British Medical Journal in October of 2013, um, we are recording this podcast in November of 2013, found that people who lived with higher levels of aircraft noise, a.k.a. closer to airports, had increased risks of stroke and other cardiovascular diseases. Um, and that's after adjustment for stuff like socioeconomic status and demographic factors, air pollution, uh, close to closeness to roadways. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about noise pollution in our wind turbine episode. So if, if you guys want to go back and listen to that one, but basically noise pollution of any kind can cause stress and sleep disturbance through this kind of nasty self-perpetuating cycle of uh, what's called annoyance and is actually more serious than it sounds when you just say it like, right. like I'm annoyed. Right. But, but it's, yeah, it, it, like- can, it can lead to chronic stress, which is bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, which we've talked about also in previous podcasts about how stress can really impact your quality and uh, and length of life, as it turns out. So, you know, these are these are all things that we could look at to say, well, the future of air travel needs to address certain things like how efficient the aircraft are, how quickly they travel, how much noise they produce. How many types of emissions do they emit? Can we limit that? And and some of these questions are uh, really complicated already. And then you complicate them more by saying, well, what's the best approach? Because obviously we don't have a magic solution to uh, addressing all of these issues at once. Some of them you're going to have to weigh against others and decide what's the most important. But let's talk about some of the um, some of the proposals we've seen for making aircraft more efficient. Uh, yeah, some groups, uh, for example, NASA have started to get heads together basically and say, "Well, let's look at aircraft design and see what we can do to actually fix these problems instead of just you know worrying about them." Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, didn't, didn't they put together a whole like report yeah. on uh, uh, outlining some some good future guidelines for how to get planes to yeah. be safer and awesomer? In two thousand nine, NASA's uh, Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate's Integrated Systems Research Program. Does that not have like an acronym? I I bet that has. (laughs) Is. See, that's perfect. (laughs) Rolls off the tongue. NASA armed is. Okay. Yeah, there we go. All right. All right. NASA. NASA. Uh, uh, They released um, the Environmentally Responsible Aviation Project. Um, And this basically, it was. to uh, challenge people to come up with new aircraft configurations that they could deploy by um, 2025. And oh wow, that's soon. They've got a, and right now on their website they've got a list of goals that include reducing aircraft drag by eight percent, um, reducing aircraft weight by ten percent, uh, reducing specific fuel consumption of aircraft engines by fifteen percent. Uh, reducing oxides of nitrogen emissions by 75%. Oh, that's wow. a big one. That's very ambitious, and, uh, obviously. Reducing aircraft noise by one-eighth compared to current standards. And I think those were based on um, aircraft uh, as they were measured in 1998, but that's, I think, not a whole lot different than now because a lot of the aircraft that are in service have been around for a long time. For sure. Several like decades. Even, even the ones that have been constructed you know, relatively recently were in the engineering planning department for years before they were ever, you know, unveiled to the public. So, you know, even if you were to say, "Oh, but the such and such plane only came out in 2004," so clearly it's well, there's chances that it the probably, plans it probably date had to way have gone back. through at least ten years of, yeah. of testing. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, yeah, and so I wanted to talk about uh, a few things, uh, ideas I've seen in conjunction with uh, the response to this project. Uh, and some some of these are aerodynamic redesigns to the body of airplanes because it turns out this matters a whole lot. Mm-hmm. It's not just your engine, but it's um, dealing with this thing, the drag coefficient. Right. right. The resistance that your plane is experiencing as it's flying. And I guess you're also trying to increase the lift to drag ratio right um to lower the amount of energy you need and therefore probably also the emissions you create when you're flying through the air right your engines don't have to work as hard if the drag is lowered yeah um and so one of the cool things i saw was the idea of the boxed wing or the closed wing system have you ever seen this Mm, no i've not seen pictures of it i read a little bit about it and it it basically made my mind go and run away it's um 
on one hand, it seems really simple. It's so normally you imagine a, a plane body like a passenger jet, a Boeing, you know, it's got wings sticking out. Well, apparently when a plane is flying through the air at its maximum efficiency, you know, high speed, um, there is this phenomenon known as wingtip vortices. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the ends of the wings, there's this turbulent spiraling of air mm-hmm. that creates drag on the airplane as it's moving through. Um, because in general, turbulence is bad. Right. Um, right. And so w- one idea is that you have these things called winglets, wingtip devices, mm-hmm. and they try to cut down on wingtip vortices by uh, – you've probably seen something l- like this before. Instead of just the wings ending – They've got like little, uh, little, little flap- thing, little flappy tab doos. that flips yeah. up mm-hmm. on yeah. the end. And, and so that helps cut down on that some, but it's still there. Well, what if you, um, sort of extend that idea and just keep those winglets coming up until they come all the way around and form a closed loop system of wings? Well, apparently Lockheed Martin offered a design like this in response to the ERA program. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and so it looks, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it, it it looks like it's got a boxy wing. Other people throughout <laughs> history have tried to do this with, like, say, loop wings, like ring wings. They, they come out, and they're sort of a circle around the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be one that, uh, like modern passenger planes, the wings are, are built right into the fuselage. So, okay. So um, it's not like a loop around the fuselage. But uh, I, I don't know if that's feasible for any reason or not. All right, so, so so that's what that's what Lockheed's been working on. Uh, what what other designs are out there? Um, well, there's uh, here's one. You ever seen a B two bomber? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so there's this thing about it. It's kind of different than the body of most passenger planes, and that most of them have this kind of uh, you know cucumber tube in the middle, and then mm, with wings, the wings sticking coming out. Off, yeah, whereas um, uh, a B two is what's referred to as a flying wing. Yeah, it's a flying wing design, so the whole thing is a wing. Right. And why does that help? Well, the wings are the part of the plane that gives you lift uh-huh. um, because a, a plane stays in the air essentially by throwing air down off the bottom of it. So as it as it moves through the air very quickly, it's um, it's throwing air downward and this lifts the body of the plane up. Now, the more flat surface you have along the bottom of the plane to, to sort of get the uh, oncoming air to rush under the more lift you have. And so a flying wing design helps give you a better lift-to-drag ratio. Um, now, apparently, there are a lot of difficulties with a design like this. Like, it might be harder to make the plane stable. But, of course, we got some smart people out there who are aeronautics yeah. engineers. And um, the thought is, if you could create a passenger plane that had a fuselage built into the wing design instead of mm-hmm. separately, that would also help increase efficiency. Um, a similar plan to this is a sort of what's been called a blended wing design, which is sort of like somewhere in the middle between what a modern passenger plane looks like today and that flying wing totally flat design where there's sort of a uh, still a separate fuselage, but it's more evenly Integrated. built into the wing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so th- those are some new body designs, but also there are a lot of things just about uh, the more specific individual parts of the plane that can help improve efficiency uh, while it's in mid-flight. Uh, for example, one thing is uh, what I've read about is called hybrid laminar flow control. Mm-hmm. So when air moves over a plane it, or where 
really when anything's moving through a fluid, mm-hmm. there are two different ways that it that the fluid outside, like air or liquid or whatever, can move over the vehicle. And it can move over it in turbulent flow, which usually happens at higher speeds, and that means it's it's getting all churned up and it's um, moving in a lateral direction. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can move in laminar flow, which is sort of like smooth parallel motion. And so when you're rushing through air, the air that flows over you is going to be, I guess, smooth when you first encounter it. But as it moves along the surface at high speeds, it's more likely to become turbulent. Okay. But um, laminar flow control on the outside of a plane is designing the surface of the plane to try to reduce this, to make the airflow over the plane as smooth as possible for as long as possible. So does this have to do with uh, with materials science, figuring out the best materials to create this laminar flow? Uh, it could, but it also could just have to do with, like, designing the skin of the airplane. Like, you could, uh, apparently designing it with holes placed in certain places can allow suction of air down through that uh, offsets some of this, like, outward spiraling of uh-huh. air that creates the turbulence. Oh, cool. And uh, in any case, it, I, I know this is complicated engineer stuff, but basically what it is is it's designing the skin of an airplane to make it flow more smoothly. Awesome. Okay, so we've got all these things like that, and these redesigns could help increase the efficiency of airplanes during flight. Um, another one might just be like, uh, well, I'm, surely you can boost your lift-to-drag ratio if you just make bigger wings, right? Sure. But there are also some limits on that because the bigger your wings are, the stronger you have to make them, and then that adds weight. So uh, there is some optimal... Uh, Optimalization if, of, of weight to size. Wing size, yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, um, but, I mean, there's a practical issue too, right? Right. Uh, so a problem with a lot of these, actually, I, I talked to a friend of mine who uh, studied uh, aerospace engineering at uh, Georgia Tech, and he uh, I was talking to him about this episode, and he pointed out something interesting, which is just that uh, it might be a problem implementing these designs be- simply because they might be harder to put into operational capacity within existing airports right it might be hard to get them up to airport gates i mean oh, wow. and that, that sounds so you know banal as a as an objection but it's it's totally practical yeah, no. though i mean like okay so i i travel fairly frequently and i travel on lots of different types of aircraft and uh, some of the larger aircraft at the atlanta airport you you realize that if you're going to certain destinations you're almost always going to have to walk to the very end of the concourse, which, as we said earlier, is approximately 47 miles long. <laughs> and so uh, that's that's you know you, you just know it if you're going to certain destinations because those destinations tend to use certain yeah. types of aircraft. Like yeah, if I go to Las Vegas or Orlando, I know I'm going to be have a long walk ahead of me because they tend because to use tiny. But, well, well, they're I, using larger aircraft oh, okay. for both of those mm-hmm. because they're both high traffic destinations. Atlanta, of course, is a big hub city for uh, for air travel. So for anything that's a high, you know, high profile destination that a lot of people are going to and they're changing through in Atlanta, those aircraft tend to be larger to take as many people as possible. The larger aircraft do not fit into the gate areas that are closer into the middle of the concourse where it would be the most convenient for the passenger who's just stepping off the train and wants to get on the plane. They fit at the ends of the concourse. That's where they have a little more space for those. So if we're talking about changing the um, 
the design of planes so radically that it changes the actual profile of the planes, then that becomes a problem. We've got all this existing infrastructure, which has been built over decades and cost billions of dollars collectively. Just for like a single city, it could be billions of dollars. And then you multiply that at all the cities around the world that have, uh, have, you know, international airports or large domestic airports. This is a huge challenge. You know, yeah. I, I won't go so far as to say it's a problem, but it's certainly a challenge. Now, one way of addressing that challenge is to completely rethink the way that we have people get on and off of aircraft. I mean, I don't know about either of you. Have either of you ever flown into an airport where you got off the aircraft onto a set of stairs onto oh, yeah. the tarmac? I've, I've deplaned onto a tarmac. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, me too. But only, so, I think it was like once, and I felt like I was someone fancy in the 1960s when I did it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I did it when I was flying to a very small airport, not right. a very large one, because we had to get on a little plane that was like made out of cellophane to fly <laughs> right. to the Possum Mountain not, Airport. Not, and, tall yeah. enough to, not tall enough to sit the big boy table with all the other planes right? right yeah well i mean that's the sort of thing like if you're talking about planes that can't fit into the existing infrastructure we may be looking at doing that sort of thing that might be a practical approach a practical answer to that problem as opposed to rather than building entirely new airports or entirely new wings on existing airports or yeah or just saying well this entire concourse is going to go down for renovation and we're going to have half the right. number of gates that we had. Yeah, there's another cost obstacle, which is simply that airplanes are mega expensive and they're they're usually designed, I think, to work for a while. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. the airplanes that are already out there, nobody's in a hurry to retire them. Right. Certainly uh, not. And well, and some of the basic designs that we're using today have been in use for, for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, and you look at it again, like even going into the point of, of prototyping a, a design, testing it, making sure it's safe, making sure it actually is doing the things you intended it to do. Because sometimes people design stuff and when they test it out, they realize that it's not as efficient as they thought, right. or maybe it's even less efficient than, than conventional aircraft already are. You have to test all of that. And then once all that is done, assuming it works, you still have to go into manufacturing. All of this is... Costly, costly, and, and it takes a long, long time. All that aside, I am excited about these uh, aerodynamic redesigns, and I hope that some <clears throat> can be tested and found to be useful and actually put into practice. But I, I had another idea. Um, so all that was about just body design, yeah. aerodynamic redesign. I mean, what about the engines themselves, the part of the plane that does the flying? Well, sit yourself down, Joe. I got a tale to tell you. Yeah, you got um, something about the future of I got a, I got of, a couple of things. Big aeroplane engines. Well, I'll start this off by telling you a little a little uh, story okay. About, okay. about how stuff works. Okay. So, how stuff works, that's the office we work in. Uh-huh. And uh, we used to do this thing every year where we would write a, a an April Fools article to go on how stuff works. That was just a joke. And it was just one article out of the hundreds of articles on the site. And uh, one year, my former editor, Chris Paulette, wrote about a new version of Air Force One that was going to be uh, launched that year that was a hybrid airplane. <laughs> and he wrote about the fuel cells that were on the plane and how many batteries there were and the fact that it added so much weight to the plane that it required even more batteries to, you know, it, it was just sort of a joke that was all about how difficult this problem was. And, you know, it was a funny little joke and it went on the, the website and did well and great. Uh, now we got people who are working on building hybrid 
airplanes and not just an airplane that can carry a single passenger. We're talking about the application for potentially commercial jets. Whoa. Yeah. Hybrid, I assume you mean a combination of like gas turbine and electric? Well, jet fuel turbine and electric, yes. Yeah. So, for example, uh, one of the ones is, and this is merely in the concept phase. This is not even prototype phase, but right. Boeing's Sugar Volt. So Sugar is an acronym. <laughs> Sugar stands for Subsonic Ultra Green Aircraft Research. So you don't just give it candy bars and let it get really excited? No, you give it no. little bitty kisses. Okay. <laughs> give you some sugar. Butterfly kisses. Um, yeah, so, so this, this was one of the, the things that came out, one of the projects that came out of those discussions at NASA. Uh-huh. NASA uh, sort of approached a, a, an entire team, and it was led by Boeing, uh, to look into how feasible would it be to create some form of hybrid commercial jet. And so it's very similar in a way to electric cars you know, or hybrid cars, really, the, the kind of cars that use gasoline for some features and then switch over to electric. Same basic idea. So anything that would require a great deal of power to operate, so anything like takeoffs, you know, that takes a lot of power mm-hmm. to get a, an aircraft into the air, mm-hmm. that would still rely on conventional fuels for aircraft. But then once you got into a cruising speed, the idea would be to switch over to electric uh, motors as opposed to jet, you know, jet fuel engines and continue to operate using the electric uh, power source. And the idea would be that you would have batteries that would provide the electricity. Uh, ultimately, Boeing says this would allow you to design aircraft that would consume 70% less fuel on a typical flight that compared to today's conventional aircraft. Whoa. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. a huge amount of savings, right? So the design of this aircraft went beyond, and again, it's a concept, but it went beyond just the hybrid nature of the, the uh, power source, the, the engines and the motors. It also went toward the uh, aircraft's wings, which were designed to create more lift and less drag, just like we've been saying, which would also allow the aircraft to take off earlier than other aircraft, thus also adding to those savings. Because if oh, you're spinning, you mean like earlier on the runway, or earlier on the runway, yeah, right, it, would right. take, it would take less time, let's yeah. say, or less distance. Either way, you want to put it to, for them to take off. And again, the goal there is to get them to an altitude where they could switch over as quickly as possible, so that you mm-hmm. consume as as little fuel as possible. And although the wings were designed to be very large, they were also designed to fold in on themselves, so that you could, in theory use existing infrastructure, thus getting rid of that practicality problem you were talking about. Uh You mean getting it up to the gate. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Just to be able to use the existing airports that are already popular throughout the world. Um, And the timeline they gave for such an aircraft to actually become reality as opposed to just a concept would be sometime between 2030 and 2050, which sounds a lot like our standard <laughs> rolling deadline. Well, 20 to 50 years? Um, yeah, by then we're, we'll all reach a singularity. So By then we'll be on anyway. Mars, according yeah. to Mars One. But um, that's not the only hybrid vehicle I can talk about. There's yeah. actually another one I really want to mention. And, cool. and the reason I want to mention this is because, unlike the Sugar Volt, this one exists. Like, it, it's been built. And... Te- it's even undergone a test flight, like like Surely prototype a, phase on a passenger plane scale. Not a passenger plane scale, but, but it is it it's okay. it's a design that still theoretically impressive. theoretically could be scaled up to 
commercial jet size. Let's hear it. Okay. It's the DA-36 E-Star 2, which was a plane that, where the uh, It's a engine, really snazzy name. Yeah. The engine was built by uh, Siemens. Okay. And they they created an electron uh, electric series hybrid drive system, and uh, it's actually been built and it's been flown. This is a propeller based aircraft, though, not a jet aircraft. Okay, okay? so this is a hybrid plane. It uses both uh, fuel and electricity. Uh, they claim that it could be scaled up for commercial aircraft use. However, uh, whereas the the fuel savings on the Sugar Vault are predicted to be at around seventy percent, which is incredible. It's much more modest gains with the Star 2. We're talking about 25% gains. Well, so hey, still, I mean, still better, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. But uh, again, not jet engine. It's got a electrically driven hmm. motor uh, propeller. So it can uh, possibly be scaled up to aircraft that could carry between 50 to 100 passengers, depending upon the, the, the design. So not as large as... So more more like a puddle jumper than than your regular you know five hundred. I'd say between commercial. a puddle jumper and you know your your standard jet. So it all depends. Like there's some aircraft out there that have around between eighty and a hundred seats. So sure. it all depends upon uh, the the ones you're looking at. It's certainly not nearly as large as something like a seven forty seven, which can right. carry more than two hundred like passengers. Like five hundred and fifty eight people, <laughs> I think. If you stack them horizontally, you can fit one more in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and beyond that, there's one other person who has talked about the possibility of a fully electric supersonic jet. Can you guess who would be interested in building a supersonic jet that's completely electric? It's someone that we've talked about before. I'll give you a hint. He's interested in space and electric Virgin. vehicle. No. Oh. Elon Musk? Elon Musk. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking Tesla and SpaceX guy. So Elon Musk said he has some interest in looking into designing such a vehicle. Not that he has started to uh, have a concept or anything, just that that was one thing that he would, a challenge he would like to try and, and uh, meet at some point. Now keep in mind that Musk has got a lot of stuff on his plate already, including Tesla, SpaceX, and the Hyperloop. Right. So, um, Oh, although technically the Hyperloop's not on his plate. It he's, was something he's more he's, of an idea, man. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and so I don't know how likely it is that he or his engineering team are ever going to seriously look into this. It would be really remarkable to build a fully electric supersonic jet. Yeah. I mean, creating a, an electric motor capable of getting an aircraft into the air, let alone going into going supersonic, supersonic speeds yeah. is pretty hard. Well, yeah, I'd have to imagine there are so many challenges to that. And my guess would be that the huge problem is the batteries. That right? would be enormous. Where yes. do you store all this energy? Right. Right. And that was going to be my question for, for that savings of 70% of the normal energy that we would use that you were talking about with the sugar vault mm-hmm. is, you know, batteries aren't charged with magic they're they're also charged with energy and, right well 70 uh, percent of fuel a fuel is well, what it would be not uh, well yeah yeah and and that's that's what i meant to say and not what i physically said <laughs> but um but, but but i mean you know it brings us back to that common um argument that we make about like well even if you are plugging something into a wall socket that's not where's free the electricity energy, coming right? from it's still right. coming from somewhere right so, so if that it, electricity is coming from a coal plant that's right down fuel the road is being burned yeah, one way exactly. or another yeah. yeah it's just it's different kind of fuel different kind of emissions but uh-huh. it's still it's still something that you have to think about whereas if that electricity is coming from a solar farm or a wind farm or some dude pedaling a bicycle really <laughs> fast in the back of the airport uh you know that that's different mm-hmm Joe's yeah. <laughs> like, no, man, that guy pedaling that bike is just like a coal plant. 
<laughs> well, you're a tough man, Joe. All right, so um, but you know, I wanted to talk about something besides just electric and hybrid vehicles too. All right, so we we talked about the hybrids, the the idea of electricity and jet fuel. We talked about the pie in the sky electric vehicle that has no parameters around it, other than the fact that Elon Musk said one other thing. He wanted it to be. Uh, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you just add another impossible thing? And I mean, the that's only the person who can pilot anyway. it is Nick Fury. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the size of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> yeah. No, he wants a jet that could take off vertically and land uh, land vertically, meaning that you know it could it wouldn't need you wouldn't need an airstrip. You could right. just take off straight from wherever you need, yeah. you were. Yeah, but even the the planes that are capable of vertical takeoff and landing, like say the Harrier jump jet or the yeah. V2 Osprey. They're not, they don't like to do that. No. Right. You want it's to avoid it at all preferred, costs. Preferred. Yeah. But this is that, you know, Musk is like go big or go home though. So, but uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the solar impulse. You guys have heard about this, right? The solar powered oh, yeah. airplane. Yeah. 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 So solar powered aircraft. Uh, it's one of those things that when you first hear it, you think, well, that's crazy. Well, you think there's a catch. They're like, okay. So they used gas to get up in the air or something. Um, no, this is a solar powered airplane. It's a solar powered aircraft. It's now, pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Uh, once I start ex- describing it, you're going to realize, oh, that's pretty awesome, but not practical. <laughs> uh, so it's a one seater plane. So there's that's strike one, strike one. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if you're going to have something that's using solar power, you are limited by how much energy you can get at any given time. Even if you have batteries on this thing, the batteries can only supply so much energy. Uh, but uh, let's be clear to not downplay this achievement. This is not just something that we're talking about as a concept. The no, solar impulse has existing. completed a flight across the United States yeah. in stages. But. Right, and it's the plan is to have it fly all the way around the globe um, by 2015. Yeah. So it's, I mean... Th- th- it exists, and it, it's an incredible achievement. It's just one of those things where you realize that while this is an incredible achievement, it also kind of illustrates the, the actual problem. Yeah, yeah, the problem of things like the efficiency of solar panels, as well as trying to come up with a design for an aircraft that is truly efficient and is not um, emitting any greenhouse gases. So what you're saying is you don't think the solar impulse means that there's ever going to be a solar-powered passenger. Well, plane. let me give you a few more examples of what this thing does. Okay. All right. So so it's a one-seater plane and part of that is to really control exactly how much weight this aircraft has because weight is one of those really important things about, you know, the more weight you have, the more power you need to get that thing going through the air. Mm-hmm. Um it's got a really large wingspan to try and maximize lift and it also the, the design is uh there to minimize drag mm-hmm. just like we've been talking about. I imagine and- that also gives it a little bit more surface area for solar panels. Yeah, uh, it's got more than 11,000 solar panels on it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this, by the way, is giving uh, probably just enough electricity to fly it at regular cruising speed, maybe uh, with a comfortable margin, but not a huge amount and, uh, over over that. And with a plane that size, you're talking about a, a light sport craft, which is is going to only be going um, a, a very small fraction of what a jet plane. <laughs> oh. You want to know how fast this sucker goes? I do. <laughs> your car goes faster, Lauren. <laughs> as, actually, yeah, your car at idle can go. Fa- no, it's it's 43 miles per hour uh, average flying speed or 70 kilometers per hour. Okay. That's that's the average flying speed. That's on the um, slow end for a light sport craft. Uh, those those can generally go up to um, I, I guess like. Auto 
autobahn speeds, like like maybe like 130 miles per hour right. is, is what you're normally yeah, going to hit this, one of those. This thing flies so uh, leisurely that you can get to where you're going faster in a car. Um it's got uh, it's got a maximum altitude of about uh, twenty seven thousand nine hundred feet or eighty five hundred meters, and uh, yeah, it just um, it it flies by solar power and and by batteries, so that if uh, if it's overcast and you're not you're not flying at an altitude high enough to be over the clouds, no, so no. Uh, if it's overcast, your your batteries can maintain flight as well as if it you know if it's nighttime, you could still fly this thing. Um, and in fact, that's important for a flight that's going to go around the globe. It's not always going to have full exposure to the sun. Not unless you timed it extremely carefully. Right. So you have to remember, like these <laughs> these solar panels. Yeah. Like lots of stops and you have lots of aircraft carriers between <laughs> California and Asia. Um, so, Joe, to your question, like, could this ever be a commercial aircraft? No. I mean, the limitations are just too great. Our, our efficiency for solar panels is pretty low. We're talking. Um, right. It's, I think, really good for solar panels is usually like 20 percent. That's efficiency. right. Yeah. 20 percent efficiency and- is like is like in the field. That's considered a really good goalpost. Right. And in the lab, we've gotten up to a blazing like 50% efficiency, and that's an extremely hypothetical situation. Right. It's to a point where you would never see that ever. Never. And and keep in mind, again, that's under ideal conditions. So 20% efficiency under ideal conditions. Then you have other things that are not 100% efficient. I mean, your drivetrain is never going to be 100% efficient. I think that they calculated that out of all the potential energy this aircraft could, in theory, gather if everything worked perfectly, the actual amount of energy that goes into operating the plane is something like 12%. Wow. So that means you've got a 12% efficiency, ultimately, for this aircraft, which is not great. And and even if you were to increase the efficiency of the solar panels, you can only do that so much, and adding the extra weight and size of the aircraft would make it like the the problem is that that extra weight and size would rapidly go well beyond whatever extra capacity you had by uh, bumping up that solar panel efficiency. So it does not look like it would ever be an effective way of uh, of creating a commercial jet aircraft. Yeah, and even if it's really light, I don't imagine you could just keep making the wings infinitely longer. No. I mean, eventually you, <laughs> no. you'd have some structural problems. Yeah, you have some yeah. metal yeah. fatigue already with regular aircraft. Sure. And uh, I read that apparently the solar impulse, when you factor in all the uh, efficiency problems, uh, is ultimately about as powerful as the Wright Brothers plane. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you wouldn't expect to fly on a aircraft powered by the Wright Brothers engine that would allow you and uh, 99 of your closest friends to hop on over to the Bahamas. Uh, yeah. At the same time, I just want to say once more that uh, just because this thing doesn't do the thing we're asking about, it's still pretty amazing what it well, does the fact, do. Yeah. The fact that it was, you know, it, it's truly a feat in engineering. It's amazing that people were able to have it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't mean to take anything away from the people who oh, worked totally. on the project. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just not a solution to commercial aircraft. That doesn't mean that it won't teach us lots of valuable things, right? Yeah. But, See, um, I, I've got a better idea, I think actually, which is a wind powered aircraft, because you've got all this <laughs> wind coming at you when you're flying. If you just put some 
like wind turbines so right the, next to the jet engines yeah so you got wind turbines yeah you know, people just look at them like this is totally confusing <laughs> me well i mean technically that's that's what supersonic planes use to ignite the fuel in their jet engines scram jets the yeah. scram jets yeah. yeah you know that that brings us to the concept of supersonic i'm glad that uh we were able to segue seamlessly and oh, then I, oh su- then i commented supersonic on it. that's dead right no <laughs> Not, I mean, not entirely. I mean, for commercial jets right now, it's not. It's definitely not what people oh, are looking yeah, at. No, I don't mean for the military. I mean, like, <laughs> uh, commer- like supersonic passenger jets. Is that just a thing of the past, or is there any future it's, for that? It's tough. All right. I think there's a future in the sense that there's certainly a desire for it from the consumer standpoint, right? I mean, if you are you told get there fast, right? Yeah, if you're told right. like, well, if you fly on a standard aircraft it's going to take you eight hours to get from new york to london but then you're told uh what or you could jump on this other aircraft and it's going to take you three and a half hours the concord um, yeah the concord uh so the, yeah we of course there was the supersonic commercial jet the concord there were only 20 of them ever built i believe and uh it was a premium customer aircraft right so like take the highest amount you would ever pl- pay for a first class ticket and add about 20% to that ticket. Oof. That's how much your average ticket was mm-hmm. on for just a ride on the Concorde. It had a capacity of 100 passengers. And for a while, it was operating at capacity. So it was fairly profitable for a while. But the aircraft... Uh, suffered some some major setbacks. For one, the economy of jet fuel began to change over time, and that began to impact the bottom line. For another, there were obviously there was the terrible tragedy in Paris, where the Concorde uh, uh, completely uh, was completely destroyed when right. it was. I think it was on takeoff when it uh, in, it collided with something, and uh, like I think a piece of the jet broke off and ended up a catastrophic failure and absolute terrible tragedy. That impacted the entire industry, not just the Concorde, but the entire commercial air, uh, airline industry. Um, and then there were other uh, things that happened that got the FAA and other organizations interested in making sure that aircraft were at certain levels of safety, and that would have meant retrofitting the entire fleet of Concords, which would have cost millions of dollars. Ultimately, the Concord program was shelved, but if you're curious how fast it could go, <laughs> so your average commercial jet travels at a speed of around 500 miles per hour. Right? Okay. That's that's average. Um, now, that's, that's average a, cruising speed. Average right? cruising speed. Which is right. different than, say, like takeoff speed. Right, or exactly. Like yes, yeah. Average cruising speed is about 500 miles per hour or 804 kilometers per hour. The Concorde traveled at Mach 2.02, which is about 1,350 miles Oof. per hour or 2,170 kilometers per hour. That's, that's a decadent. Yeah, it man. took, um, <laughs> average travel time was three and a half hours between, uh, New York and London. Uh, although, Decadent, but awesome. The fastest travel time between New York and London was two hours, 52 minutes, and 59 seconds. Wow. Yeah, that was kind of a a, a proof of concept, see how fast you could get there. Yeah, yeah. These are supersonic. Uh, That means they go faster than the speed of sound. Yeah, so I want to ask a few questions here. So I I assume supersonic jets mean... uh, my Correct me if I'm wrong, massive consumption of fuel. Yeah. also, uh, sonic booms. Yes, and both of these things are bad. Well, I mean, depending upon whom you ask, if you if you are a person who sells jet fuel, you think it's awesome. <laughs> 
But uh, no, in general, we consider both of these to be strikes against supersonic jets. So yes, the Concorde was a fuel-hungry aircraft. It consumed more fuel than your your regular commercial jets would uh, to to operate at that level. And uh, because it had fewer passengers on the Concorde than, say, a 747 would, that... You're not making back as much uh, Right. We talked efficiency. about We talked about the fuel efficiency being thought of in terms of how many passengers you get from point A to point B, plus the distance and everything else in between. Uh, if you look at that, the Concorde was something like uh, 17 miles per gallon of fuel per passenger, and the 747 was like 80 so yeah. that's a big difference. Like, yeah, you're going to get there faster, but it's much less efficient. It's going to cost a lot more in fuel. You're going to have a lot more emissions. Uh, on top it's of like that. It's like the Hummer of the skies. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> now let's talk about sonic booms. All right. So sonic booms. Now, when you travel through the air and you're traveling at a, a good speed, you are creating these waves in front of you. All right. And as you start to travel faster, these waves get compressed more and more until you hit about, you know, when you break over the speed of sound, you have compressed these waves to a point where they cannot be compressed anymore. And that's where you get this sonic boom. That's where you become Guile from Street Fighter. (laughs) Sonic boom! Um, No. There's a common misconception that you get the sonic boom when the aircraft goes from subsonic to supersonic speeds. That's not true. When you get to supersonic speed... The sonic boom is going until you get out of supersonic speed. It's it's a rolling carpet of sonic booms. So, which explains why you're going to hear it um, not only in the place where it originates, but also uh, anywhere along its path. anywhere along the path. Yeah, right. if you are anywhere along the path of this aircraft while it's traveling at supersonic speeds, when it passes over, assuming there are multiple things that that factor into this but assuming the factors are right you will hear the sonic boom those factors include everything from the speed of the aircraft the size of the aircraft how high up the aircraft is how far away it is from you because if it's not flying directly overhead that's a, that's another difference uh and the temperature of the air as it turns out because sound travels at different speeds depending upon the air's temperature mm-hmm. so when we say mach 1 we're talking about the speed of sound that's not a standard speed you know you have to consider how what the temperature of the air is that will determine what the actual speed of sound is mm-hmm. so all of these different factors will will determine whether or not you hear a sonic boom however you're probably going to hear some sonic booms if you happen to be along the pathway of a supersonic jet route so people in certain villages in england who are along the path of the concord oh god they started seeing things like the windows in their houses would keep on vibrating oh. whenever a jet was flying over sometimes the r- tiles on their roofs would come loose because these sonic booms were creating these concussive little blasts and they'd build up over time. They yeah. weren't, they weren't powerful enough to like shatter windows in a go. Sure, but, but talk about annoyance. Oh I yeah. Mean, that's yeah. a, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a problem. Uh, I also wanted to bring up the idea of hypersonic because supersonic's just not fast enough, yo. But hypersonic, now I'm talking about this only so I can compare it against supersonic because hypersonic are, these are aircraft that are not meant for commercial use at all. They, these are right, military these are use. Super fancy military planes. Sometimes scientific research, but none of it is for, you know, getting your Anywhere boss. Anywhere near commercial. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're not going to be hopping on this to go down to Disneyland. Um, if you are, then you're an astronaut, apparently. But, um, <laughs> but hypersonic, like, the fastest hypersonic jet speed ever was Mach 20. Who? 
Oof. So the Concorde went 2.02. The fastest jet to ever fly was Mach 20. Now, that was an unmanned aircraft. Yeah, I was about to say. I was about to say, that sounds uncomfortable. Um, 13,000 miles per hour. Yeah, 13,000 miles per hour by an unmanned Falcon HTV-2, which, if it were to travel between New York and London, would make that trip in 12 minutes. Oof. Yeah, 12 minutes to get from New York to London. Now, this was an unmanned flight. This is a military flight that would be launched from another aircraft. Like the HTV-2 Falcon was one of those that you would have a, a secondary aircraft flying through the air. It would be launched from that. And then but once you got to a, a, the right speed, because for scramjet engines to work, you already have to be going what is commonly referred to in the industry as wicked fast. <laughs> and then once you reach <laughs> wicked fast speed, you can... You can uh, initiate the scramjet engines. Uh, right. It's, it's the same theory as the hybrid planes that you were talking about earlier, where you've got a conventional jet engine yeah. that's going to bring you up to speed. To, and right, exactly. The, Before uh, you can go into cruise. Will, yeah. Yep. So um, the fastest speed for manned flight, I hear you ask me, is... Uh, is that, uh, let me guess. Is that SR-71 Blackbird? Yes, it is the <laughs> SR-71 Blackbird. Do you know when that record was set? I'm going to guess the 70s. Yeah, that's pretty good. 1976. Okay. 1976 was when the fastest manned flight was recorded, and that was in an SR-71 Blackbird, the successor, at least in theory, to the U-2 spy plane. Uh, it ultimately would not live longer than... We're still using the U-2. We're not yeah. still using the Blackbird. Um, the Blackbird... Uh, top speed was 2,193 miles per hour, which could get between New York and London in a little over an hour and a half. If you were to fly it, that again, obviously not a commercial jet. You're talking about a spy plane. If you're taking a spy plane to get from New York to London, you're clearly Archer, and you live in a fantasy <clears throat> universe. Uh, the rest of and us have to cartoon. go much slower. Well, the, that. The, how is that? I don't discriminate against cartoons. Okay. All right. I'd imagine that the fuel costs there really cut into the peanut and tiny soda can budget. <laughs> <laughs> so right. Snacks are not complimentary on nope. this. Uh, the movie was just Biodome. Yeah. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back. All right. So anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of like an overview well, of, of – and now, now you were asking like is supersonic – Yeah, is there a future jets? for sip, supersonic? Uh not a near future, I would say. I don't think there's a near future for it, mainly because the costs of operating it and maintaining it are so high and the uh, the return on investment is so relatively low that I think it's going to be a while before we see supersonic jets on a commercial level, in a, you know, rolled out on a wide, a wide level. Like, we're not going to see that for you know, several years. Uh, a, a greater amount of efficiency would really be necessary to make it anywhere near worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, it's again, if and you if you were if you were looking at the numbers with the Concord program, it looked at least on paper that it was profitable, and it, maybe it was. And there were other issues that caused uh, caused the the program to be shelved. But it's such an expensive thing to even ramp up and then to, you know, you have to have the clientele there because obviously if it's expensive to maintain, then you have to offset that cost through the cost of the ticket. Right. It sounds less profitable than applying some of those efficiencies to uh, to larger passenger jet engines. Right. Yeah. Especially if you could if you can retrofit an existing fleet with with, uh, you know, gradual improvements and then increase your efficiency that way. That would might make way more sense than building out a new fleet of aircraft that are super fast but are not efficient. So I I wish I could say that supersonic commercial jets are right around the corner and soon we're going to be getting to 
you know, around the world and, and no time flat, but I just don't think it's there. Maybe in the far future, but not the near future. Joe, okay. you're giving me sad face. Well, no. <laughs> Actually, no, I feel pretty good. Be- I, I feel uh, frustrated by a lot of the practical uh, obstacles, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I feel excited about the ideas we've just talked about. Well, and yeah. see, the, and the thing is that all, all the ideas we've <laughs> talked about, times. all the ideas we've talked about are ultimately not only great for improving things like uh, energy efficiency and and the the environmental impact. Ultimately, they also are financially. Uh, um, attractive to mm-hmm. airlines. So it's not like airlines are necessarily going to drag their feet on making changes to the, to their aircraft because if it means that they end up saving money uh, through operational costs, then that's better for the bottom line. So it's one of those things where these are in alignment, which is, that's great. That's fantastic when that happens because we see a, a, one of the problems we see with alternative energy is that often the alternatives are more expensive than what we're using right now, whether that's because they're just, well, right. harder initially. To get at. initially, initially, certainly. Well, also you have subsidies that yeah. end yeah. up offsetting things too, but, but that's one of those issues, right? You it frequently look at that. becomes a, a goodness of the company's heart kind right. of issue rather than – and if you can make it profitable, then obviously it's a lot easier for someone to, to want to adopt. Yeah, exactly. And in this case, it looks like that's one of those – you know, it's things are coming into alignment. So I think we will see changes over the next couple of decades. But, you know, this is a huge industry we're talking about. So rapid change is probably something we're not going to see. I would say it would be gradual, but, you know – I'm hoping it will be positive change. Yeah. No, but all this is cool. I'm excited. Me too. All right. So we're going to wrap up this discussion, guys. Thank you for listening. If you uh, want to join in on the discussion, I recommend you first check out our website, fwthinking.com, because it's awesome. We have blog posts, podcasts, videos up there. Go check that out. And, of course, you can join in on uh, with us t- talking about this. We're on Google+. Plus. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Just look for FW Thinking. You can find us at all those locations. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 